Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers. And today uh, we are discussing Black protest, the pulpit to the streets with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. Now, Jennifer has the distinction today of being the only guest that I've had on this show to date who has been on three times, get that, three times. So, and, and, she's, and she's amazing enough to, to, uh, to justify all that. And you'll find that out here in just a moment. So um, let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer. Jennifer is a lawyer, a social justice advocate, and has released her father's book entitled God in the Ghetto, which spells out his calling as a minister, requiring the Christian church to observe and follow the biblical example to liberate Blacks from oppression in America through peaceful, nonviolent Black protest. Originally published in 1979, the ministry and message of the late Reverend Dr. William Augustus Jones, Jr. from the Black protests of the 60s and 70s continues to resonate and serves as a powerful blueprint for freedom and justice today. Now a little bit about Jennifer. Jennifer Jones Austin is an author, lawyer, and social justice advocate for low-income individuals and families in New York City. Recently, New York City Mayor de Blasio appointed Jennifer as the chair of a commission to eradicate systemic and institutional racism in the city of New York. For over 20 years, Jennifer has served on many nonprofit boards and has held leadership positions in many organizations committed to social justice. Now, I could go on and on. This was the abbreviated version because it would take me at least half the show to get through giving her the appropriate um, respect that she is due. Jennifer Jones Austin, welcome, my dear. Oh, so good to be with you. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to be here for a third time. And it's kind of nice to be the first at something. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Oh, you are so welcome. So I think that um, where I would like to start is perhaps at this appointment, this position from uh, Mayor de Blasio, because this has all occurred since you were here mm -hmm. the last time. So um, can you talk a little bit about maybe how that transpired or, or what that work as you see it moving forward? Because I know this is, this is, you know, kind of fresh off the press stuff. It's still pretty new. Um, just how, how that came about and, and what your vision is or, or how you're moving about in that space. Because that's, that's heavy lifting. That it's, really uh, is. You know, it's a daunting task, but uh, I'm a firm believer that if God brings you to something, God will bring you through it. And that uh, we are all purposed to, you know, to to lead and to serve in various capacities. And so, uh, when the call came to serve in this capacity as chair of the Racial Justice Commission for the City of New York, 
I immediately responded. Uh, I don't want to be one of those persons when uh, children, grandchildren look at you and say, well, what, what were you doing when? Uh, when such and such happened, where were you? Uh, I don't want to be the person who has to say, well, I was just kind of sitting on the couch and watching it play out on TV. That's my own uh, issue that maybe I have to work through, but I think that I've been called to serve, and so I'm serving. The commission uh, came about as uh, the result, uh, the positive consequence, if you will, of all of the attention being paid over the course of the last uh, year now to racial injustice here in, New York, here in New York, here in America, continuing racial injustice. We saw it with COVID and the racial disparities in uh, uh, infection rate and in healthcare and in uh, death rates for persons of color compared to non-white, uh, non-persons of color. We saw it with the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks. These incidents, these tragic incidents coupled with COVID uh, playing out on, across the country and on the television screen, television screens for so many people, radio stations, social media and the like over the course of the last several uh, months has caused people, uh, individuals, corporations, companies, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, government uh, leaders, to say, what are we doing? Is there, you know, systemic racism that attends uh, the, you know, that which I have responsibility for, and what can I, what should I be doing about it? Now, I'm not saying everybody's centered, but um, many people are. And here in New York City, the mayor uh, appreciated, uh, thankfully, that racism, systemic racism, doesn't attend to, you know, instances of police misconduct or excessive use of force only that racism pervades every pillar of our society, education, housing, healthcare, uh, environment, uh, environmental concerns, policing, uh, the list goes on and on, income and wages. And so what this mayor determined was that we needed to take a look at the charter of New York City, essentially the law of the land of New York City, mm -hmm. very much like the United States Constitution, the charter, are, uh, is essentially the book that contains the laws of the city of New York. And he determined we needed to take a look at the laws to get a good sense of how they individually and collectively uh, have helped to birth and perpetuate systemic racism in uh, power and decision-making, in uh, services and education supports, in who has access to governmental resources, whether they be capital for starting a new business or income supports related to housing or childcare, that we needed to take a look at how the charter itself, which lays the structural foundation, brings about, perpetuates inequity and systemic racism. And so it's the first of its kind in the nation. No other city has done this. Uh, and I'm proud uh, to serve as a commission member and as chair. And essentially what we're doing is we're taking a look at the laws of the city of New York that govern everything from who gets a contract to manage New York City's you know, multi-billion dollar pension to who gets a contract for community-based services, looks at you know, how is it decided, who has access to the best public schools in New York City and who doesn't looks at you know, who serves on the boards of the community boards, uh, the board that oversees city planning, the board that oversees land use, 
how are all of these decisions made? Uh, and, you know, where are we seeing that there is racism, essentially, in terms of uh, design or implementation or impact? And what do we need to do to actually weed out that racism and put forth new laws that can bring about change? That's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> that's that that's a huge to-do list. And I I am so uh honored to know you and to know that New York City, which I did live for a number of years, uh is is uh taking taking a look at that and entering that uh discussion, that analysis, I think is is tremendous. Uh, I am uh, I, a, a few weeks ago. I had the privilege of interviewing um, uh, Svante Myrick, the mayor of Ithaca, New York, and it was on police reform. And his uh, uh, passing uh, through the city council, uh, a a sort of revisioning of the police department. So, I, I you know I, I find that to be remarkable, and and certainly. Uh, applaud those efforts in Ithaca and his work there as their youngest mayor and also the, the first mayor of color in Ithaca, New York. So if that's you don't a big know Svante Myrick, you should. <laughs> yeah, and can I tell you, that's a big undertaking and it's a bold undertaking and, you know, and, and, and needs to be applauded. Uh, you know, it's very difficult in this moment, even as a Black person, to, um, you know, to lead, uh, you know, there's this, we, this is a moment where um, we uh, all, all or many, I should say many more people feel empowered uh, and encouraged to speak truth about systemic racism in our society. And so I applaud the mayor for doing so because, you know, in past, in the past, you'd have people elected to prominent positions, even as high as the highest office uh, of the land, if you will, when, as concerning the president of the United States, yeah. and still be hesitant to engage on issues concerning race and racism because of the fallout that might result. And would it get in the way of somebody really pursuing a robust agenda? to bring about transformative change on issues, matters of race and other. And so you've seen people hesitate. So I, I greatly uh, admire and applaud uh, Ithaca's mayor for doing that. That's a tremendous, bold step and much needed by him and many other people. He's a great model. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I was honored to have him on. And and again, I love the forward thinking and, and the folks that take that on. You just mentioned something a second ago as you referenced uh, uh, President Obama in, in your reference, but I, I think there's another piece to that, as you cited as hesitance, but I think there's the other piece that happens, which is sort of its own filibuster, the the, the gang tackle that happens mm. to nullify any efforts and to handcuff and shackle an individual. Mm. So suddenly they're in this position, but they can't move left or right. So I don't think we another, remember that. Huh? Remember, remember the beer summit? Yeah. yeah. Right? When Skip Gates uh, noted a uh, Harvard professor, a man of color, black man, was uh, essentially challenged uh, uh, by the, the Cambridge police, uh, claiming that he was breaking and entering, uh, breaking and entering someone else's home when he was actually trying to get into his own house. And uh, remember, yeah. uh, President Obama was quick to call out how that was yet one more example of 
you know, racist policing in America. And he got hit hard mm. by many different uh, individuals and entities for doing that. And ultimately what resulted was a beer summit where he invited uh, Skip Gates and the officer who was, uh, you know, the essentially uh, the, I want to say the perpetrator, but I guess I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but the, the instigator, I don't know, he was the cop on the beat on the scene. <laughs> right. But remember, but, but President Obama brought, brought them to the White House, to the garden, and they had a beer summit. And I just remember how there were so many in the, in, 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 in the Black community who felt that that was a missed moment. Um, and and some might say, well, did he have a choice? Because the pile on mm-hmm. that was, you know, that, that 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 he experienced when he called out the situation for what it was, right? You know, that pile on, you know, people were concerned that was going to get in the way of him doing some good in other places and spaces because we'd immediately pivot to race matters, and he would be seen as not being the president for everybody. So, you know, there's always this yeah. balance that has to be struck. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, and it's I don't know, it's it's it. Well, it's it's what we have what we can comfortably call the American way. And we just need a new way. That's for sure. America oh, like deserves that. a new way. Um, so now I, I think we're probably we may be coming up pretty close on. Um, let me scroll around, catch up to myself real quick. Um, yeah, we, we've got a we, we've got a break coming up in a couple of minutes, but bef- before we do, I just want you to have an opportunity to, uh, in in like a minute, if you will, just sort of. I believe as we we discussed this show, uh, which I was immediately um, uh, all over because of not only your your role uh, in in New York City, your new appointment. Um, I, I know I wanted to reach out to, with you uh, to you for that, but also then the re-release of your father's book, which is not just a book. I mean, this is a book. This is a significant work that has affected uh, black ministers and 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 many for 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 decades. And I am I am honored to to bring these two subjects together because I'm sure that. The father that raised you, many of the principles that are outlined here uh, have to do with your walk in this in, in, in this world. And so none of this is by accident. And so I think it's very interesting. That's why for you to be able to share with us that outline of this appointment. And now when we dive in, we might be able to get a better understanding of the, the underpinning ethic and moral fortitude mm-hmm. that really may be contained and I'm certain is influenced by your father's work and the house you grew up in and how you were raised. And all of that has to do with your character and and how you walk through this world. So I am grateful to have you here. And we are at that break. So I just sort of comfortably sucked up all the oxygen in that. (laughs) But we'll be back and you'll be able to, to expound on that. So it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here and to have this discussion on this day. You are you are listening to Bill Myers Inspires right here on the Inspired Choices Network, and we will be back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. 
Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday. 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We are back, and you are listening to Bill Myers Inspires. And today's show is Black Protest, the Pulpit to the Streets, with my special guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. And... Um, so, Jennifer, uh, I want to ask you again uh, about your father's work and the re-release of that work. But as we do that, I want to to reveal this was the original work that was released, The God in the Ghetto. And here is the, the new release of God in the Ghetto. I love it. And I have both of these in my possession, and I am deep into these readings wow. here um wow so it is it is amazing so i have to thank the uh reverend dr winterborn harrison jones for bringing me a copy of the original so uh there's there's uh okay now i've paid that bill so now <laughs> <laughs> so jennifer talk to me about god in the ghetto i'm, I'm just gonna leave this wide open for you Okay, so let me let me quickly share just a little bit more about my background that brings it all full circle. So I um, I grew up in a house with a faith leader engaged in uh, actively engaged in the social gospel. Uh, my father, uh, his mantra was freedom is the ability to say no to a lie, to veto an untruth. He would say that the preacher 
is the freest person on earth because that person's uh, allegiance is to God first. Uh, and so uh, growing up in a household where uh, those, you know, those, I heard those lines, but I also saw them lived out, um, caused me to believe that uh, every preacher, you know, should be in the, in the work, engaged in the work of active social gospel practice. And, you know, the practice of social gospel, as, you know, the, the uh, parable in Matthew 25 teaches us, is to, you know, take care of and, you know, look after the least of these. You know, uh, Jesus talks about, you know, uh, did you, you know, like when, when did you clothe the, you know, the unclothed? When did you visit uh, those who were in prison? When did you, you know, did you, did you care for the sick? Did you feed the hungry, right? And he says, you know, that what you did to the least of these, you did to me. Jesus was teaching us the social gospel that our responsibility is to care for and look, at, look after our fellow neighbor and to be revolutionary in doing so, to call out individuals, entities, institutions like the church when they are failing to lift up and love and support people who are struggling, people who are oppressed by systems. So this is the household in which I grew up. That was, this, you know, like talking about issues of civil rights and human rights, economic rights, you know, and the social gospel was as regular and familiar a conversation as talking about what we were having for lunch, what we were having for dinner, you know, where we, you know, what we were doing after church on Sunday. So what becomes of somebody raised in a household like that? You know, you feel that it is your God-given responsibility to lift up love and support your neighbors. Went to law school and determined while in law school that my calling was to be a child and family advocate. Did that for several years. And what that led me to was this appreciation that I needed to engage with community, with leaders in the community to do the work of social justice. I joined the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, which was founded to bring forth the voice of the Protestant community on issues concerning individuals and families struggling to make ends meet. I did that because in part, I wanted to work with the faith community. So I get this job as leader of this organization, feeling really good about it. And I'm gonna work with the faith community to bring about transformative change for people who are struggling in New York City and beyond. I started knocking on the doors of faith leaders, picking up the phone and calling. And some were responsive. And then some were just telling me that that really wasn't what they did. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Aren't you here to preach the social gospel? I heard from many that the business of the church is trying to keep its doors open in ever gentrifying spaces uh, when the needs of communities are so great, you know, didn't allow them to engage in revolutionary social gospel. They were just trying to keep the lights on, just trying to keep people fed. That caused me to wonder, but is that really doing the work that God intends? So I picked up God in the Ghetto, the book that was first published in 1979, which I read when I first graduated college back in the late 80s. And I started reading it again. And all of a sudden, I had an appreciation for it in a way that I didn't when I was much younger. And maybe that's because I was just reading to be reading. It was my dad's book. I was reading to be reading. But now it's in the work. And I needed answers. And what I grew to appreciate was that this book was helping me in very clear and concise manner to understand the system that we're up against when we're trying to address systemic poverty. Uh, 
that it's a system of racism, capitalism, and militarism, where the three work hand in hand. Capitalism put in place with an understanding by the authorities who put it in place, the founders of this society, uh, white persons, white men, that you know some people would have and others would not. The constitution was created telling us some would have and others would, ha would not. Specifically, white men would have, white women were subservient to white men, and black people were considered to be three-fifths of a person at best. They were not really human. And it made it okay to say that they were less than and they should not have. Racism came along and was part of that to make it valid who would have it, who would not. And then militarism, policing, using policing as a weapon here in America and beyond to keep people in an oppressive state, right? Submissive to the authorities. I picked up that book and all of a sudden I began to understand this system on the whole and how you can center on racism, but if you're not looking at how racism is tied with capitalism and militarism, then you're only getting part of the, 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 the equation and you can't really solve. I then began to also appreciate from this book that Christianity plays a much larger role in systemic capital, uh, racism, racist society and militarism and the influence of capitalism. And what I'm getting at is what dad helped me in this book, God in the Ghetto, to appreciate is that beginning with slavery, the people who have the power then and still today have used scripture to justify injustice. The Bible says that you know God sees all men and women as equal, all humans as having the same value and worth. The Bible speaks to that. Then how do we have slavery? Because what the slave master did, the slave master who also was the deacon or the, or the preacher on Sunday morning did, was essentially said that people of African descent, that black persons, people of a darker hue, essentially were the descendants of Ham. And that in the Bible, the descendants of Ham are cursed to live forever in servitude. So we were seen as descendants of Ham, right? And mm -hmm. forever cursed, which meant that we could live in servitude. And that would not be a sin against God. And so they propped up these systems using the Bible and scripture. And then they also created a, the a theology that supported it. In the book, Dad says, a surface diagnosis of the problem reveals a sick theology based on a faulty anthropology, which emanates from a false theology. And what he does is he helps us to appreciate that the false theology is one where the supreme being, God, essentially is white and male. And so then what that allows for anthropologically is for the white male, the founders of our society, of this nation, to see themselves most like God. And then they anthropologically then are more like God, most like God, so they are the supreme beings. And then sociologically speaking, they order the society with white male at top and black, and in specifically black woman at the bottom which then if you bring it forward to today, I, anyway, so let me even just stay there. Let's talk about slavery, which allowed for the raping of black women by white slave masters, which allowed for the use of the black female body, you know, for gynecological experimentation and bring it forward to today, 
which still allows for the Black woman to be, you know, the lowest paid when it comes to wages and inequity. We've structured our society to make it okay and acceptable that the white male will be supreme and all others less than, and people of color, Black people in particular, on the bottom. So this book started helping me to appreciate and understand, break it down in plain speak. Mm-hmm. And then what the Christian church has done, and still today, how the white evangelical church still uses scripture to prop up inhumane practices. How Jeff Sessions, former attorney general, said that the scripture sanctioned the caging of children at the border. And what it does is then it goes the next step to talk about what is the responsibility of the church and the black church in particular to confront the system in constructive, nonviolent ways to bring about transformative change. So that's how I got here. And, and what I'm trying to do with this book and in re, in, in reintroducing it to society is to say, we've got the information in very clear and succinct manner here to help us understand this problem that is a shared problem, not just a Black people's problem, but a shared problem. And what do we do about it? Let's let's read, let's lean in, and let's do something about it. Wow, you, you know, I yeah, it, it's amazing, it's amazing, and I and I, I do thank you once again for the invite to witness the conversation with uh, Dr. McMickle and you know, Freddie Haynes, I mean, and, and you know, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and so on. It was, it was, it was a powerful little conversation for me to sort of uh, uh, listen to and um, take in. I'm still absorbing that one, by the way. I'm still absorbing that one um, because it was just, it, it was something. It was quite, it was quite, quite a bit. And uh, so I, I thank you for that because that, that helps me in my own theological understanding and, and walk and ministry and so on and so forth. So we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back and continue this conversation with my guest, Jennifer Jones Austin. And today's show is entitled Black Protest, the Pulpit to the Streets. We'll be back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. How wonderful would it be to carry your favorite Inspired Choices Network host with you throughout your day? Well, now you can. 
Inspired Choices Network now has its very own mobile app. Our free app offers live streaming shows along with thousands of podcasts and TV episodes. Our shows cover a wide variety of topics. Whether you're waking up with us, carrying us through the day, and taking us to bed with you, we're always here for you to enjoy. We're easy to find. Just search for Inspired Choices Network in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and today we're talking about black protests, the pulpit to the streets with Jennifer Jones Austin. So, Jennifer, yeah, this is rich, and I, I, I can't can't tout it enough. So, again, this is this is the book that was re-released here recently, um, and Jennifer saw to it that that re-release happened, saw the relevance of today, and that that's you know, that this thing sings as loudly today, if not more so uh, than it did when it was originally released in 1979. So, Jennifer, let's get into it. Talk to me about God in the Ghetto and its relevance today. I mean, you just laid a a mouthful (laughs) before the break. My brain's still grinding at that, but um, take it away. Take it away. Well, you know, um, in this moment, there is so much centering on the role and the responsibility of government, uh, you know, to address systemic racism. Uh, as we look at um, the the George Floyd uh, um, uh, Justice and Policing Act, uh, the John Lewis Voting Bill, uh, and the For the People Act, um, centering on voting rights. As we look at um, uh, the you know the 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 bill that included an increase of the minimum wage in order to uh, bring about greater opportunity for Americans and and how that didn't pass as part of the uh, American uh, America's Rescue Plan. Um, there's so much attention being paid to the role of government, looking at as we talked about earlier what local governments uh, should and must be doing around policing. Uh, and, and that's all important. That's critically important. But in this moment, we, we're, we're, we're putting attention on that as if the voices of people here and there are going to move a government uh, that hasn't moved, you know, since its very beginning to bring about uh, racial equity and racial justice. These assumptions that, you know, people marching and protesting in the streets are going to bring about the change that is necessary. That's something we have to link, look into and lean into. And the, the value out of this book is helping us to appreciate that racism uh, is a part of our foundational values mm-hmm. and beliefs about who is entitled to what, and that it's a part of this nation's theological underpinnings. You know, we say that we are a society that uh, does not have a uh, definitive uh, religion. But we have to remember that for 
so many years, you know, there is a shift, a beginning shift, but we really have been a Christian-based society. Yes, uh, you know, uh, the Islamic religion is on the rise and Christianity numbers are dropping, but we were founded really, you know, by Christians. We don't like to call ourselves a Christian society, but that very much isn't and, and was the case. And so that theological underpinning is critical in trying to understand racism and why it exists, why it persists. And the understanding that comes with it that we can't rely upon government alone to just do the right thing, we're gonna have to have the church step up and respond. This need to call out how the traditional white church, not everybody, but many, have been on board with this because of how they've looked upon, you know, race and people of color. And the importance of the black church, not slacking and sitting back and saying, that's your problem, you take care of this, but rather saying, this is our responsibility. The social gospel teaches us that it is our responsibility to call out injustice and to do something about it. So for me, that is the relevance of the book in this moment. We can't rely upon anybody else to do this work. The church and the black church in particular has to stand up and say no to the continuing oppressive state that is. To say, and we know that it's not just in policing. We know that it pervades every pillar of our society and we're not going to tolerate it. We as the black church, along with allies in other spaces. I have so applaud and appreciate the work of Reverend Dr. William J. Barber that he does in Repairs of the Breach, the Poor People's Campaign, where he brings all people together because all people are suffering. We need to be in this together. I recognize that, I value that, I respect that. But that doesn't mean that the black church that knows the suffering best gets off the hook and gets to sit back and watch everybody else do the work. The black church leader needs to be out there calling out against these injustices and essentially demanding change. What if my dad once said, what if the black church as an entire body, and I'm not just talking about the Baptists, I'm not just talking about the AMEs or the Pentecost, I'm talking about everybody. What if the black church thousands and thousands of black churches with hundreds of thousands of congregants came together and said, we demand that Joe Biden and the, and, 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 and the Democrats move the Republican uh, you know, base on these issues. We're not gonna tolerate anything less. And if you don't do it, we're going to go and do something else. Maybe we'll join up another party. What if in their own communities, they put pressure on the Republicans to do the same. But right now, it's kind of every man for, his, for himself, every woman for herself, every person for themselves. It's time that we have a collective voice, faith leaders standing up and saying, we're not gonna tolerate these injustices anymore. And God in the ghetto gives a blueprint for how that's done. You know, the, the, you, you know that it is, you know, it, it is a remarkable work. And, and as, uh, I was witnessing the discussion, um, the the uh, uh, discussion that you invited me to. I, I as I was witnessing that, I happened to reach out to while I was while I was 
watching it. I uh, sent a text message to uh, the Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer, who is the president of the United Church of Christ, uh, who got his PhD in white privilege. Uh, he is a white man who is well woke. I mean, way past woke. I mean, he can give you the <laughs> he, he's done the work for years. And so I asked, I sent the text message and said, are you familiar with the book God in the Ghetto? He says, no. And then I said, are you familiar with the work of Dr. William Augustus Jones? And he said, no. And I said, you must be. And that was the same moment where I sent you a text and said, are you going to have access to the recording of this? Because afterwards, I did when I uh, the next day when I reached out to you and you gave me a link to it, I immediately sent it to uh, to John Dorhauer, and he was very very interested. So just as you were mentioning these these rights and 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 the idea of uh, roles of, of of leaders in in the black church and so on, I I would take the argument too that that needs to resonate and expand beyond that boundary solely because. There are other people who are equally mm -hmm. interested in moving and, and creating systemic change and who have their, their finger also uh, on, on the problem. And I, I think that uh, being able to continue to, to build bridges beyond, Thank because you. I don't know whether it can be done by Black people alone. I'm, I don't know whether that's yes. how this is going to roll out. Um, Absolutely. Well, in the book, uh, Dad references many theologians through the years, uh, uh, white theologians who understood the social gospel, who mm -hmm. understood well the injustices visited upon persons of color and who took action to, uh, you know, to join with uh, you know, black leaders and then stand alone sometime to press for the changes that are necessary in the society. What I'm really saying though, is that the black church shouldn't be leaving it to those persons alone to carry the water. Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and in some instances, that's what's happened. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that's one of the things that was so interesting in my in my show with um, on racism and faith leaders with Dr. John Dorhauer. He made a statement, which was uh, sort of a reference to sort of the back of the bus, mm -hmm. and he he basically said in so many words that how we get out of this problem that we're in is all of the, the, the white guys have to take a seat in the back of the bus mm -hmm. and must be led through this by the black leaders. And, and, and I mean, that, that was strong. I, 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 I still, I'm like for him to say that, but he right. is seeing that that is the truth that the, the redemption here and the ability to get it right has to come from someone other than the white males that have been sitting at the helm and, and nobody else has a voice. Now it's time for them to sit down and listen and listen. I agree. And become, uh, you know, become a force in following uh, and supporting this change. So, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only thing that I would say to that, I, I do agree. I completely agree. I just want to caution. Uh, I've been telling people of late that uh, the word ally concerns me when we talk about race matters. Mm -hmm. And that is because uh, ally is often used, even though it may not be um, with respect to definition, uh, uh, 
you know, a, a, a term that suggests that you are a, simply a support. It is often used in this space when talking about race and racism as though it is a word that suggests that I support your efforts. So you'll hear in school settings, in um, uh, work settings, uh, people refer to uh, white ally groups to support efforts uh, to address systemic racism. Uh, and they again, they refer to it as a support group. You know, uh, that's not exactly what the definition of ally is, but given the, uh, the way that it's used, I like to use the term comrades, that we are you know, joined up in this struggle and this fight together. And I raise that because I think it's important to appreciate that. I, I so much appreciate that, that, that his message about um, Black persons being able to have it be, uh, leading in this space and white persons taking a back seat. But I think we have to be careful because it's a shared responsibility. What what we know and, and people hopefully are embracing more and more is that white people need to allow themselves or, or tell themselves to, to, to be quiet and to listen and learn. And then together, let's problem solve. Mm -hmm. But I get a little anxious because you know, if 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 everybody steps back and just allows black persons to lead in this moment. It won't necessarily mean that the power structures are going to be responsive. I think we need to work hand in hand. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I and I do appreciate that that distinction and that caution. Um, and 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 I recognize that as well. I, I absolutely do. Um, so no, you are correct. Um, it's all hands on deck because we got a mountain to move. <laughs> we got a mountain to move. So um we are up on our break, our last break, and um, you are listening to Bill Myers Inspires with my guest today, the amazing Jennifer Jones Austin, Wonder Woman. I'm just going to call you Wonder Woman. Is that okay? I hope you don't find that offensive, but I, I just you are good to me. No, 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 that's all good. I something I aspire to. Yeah, you know, I just the outfit next time, the fourth time, I want the whole the whole get up. So. Um, so it is wonderful having you here and we are discussing black protest, the pulpit to the streets and we'll be back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to 
Bill Myers Inspires, here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. And today we are talking about Black protest, the pulpit to the streets with Jennifer Jones Austin. And once again, we are referencing uh, a newly released uh, re-release of her father's prophetic work uh, that was originally released in 1979. And it is titled God in the Ghetto. And I I can't say enough about the book. It, it is definitely packing a lot of information uh, that I believe is totally relevant and and needed today more than ever. And so, again, uh, I want to thank you, Jennifer, for recognizing and uh, and doing the, the work to see to it that this was released again at this time, because I think that your instincts, your gut, your guidance your calling was absolutely spot on and i know it has blessed me in in uh reading it and i am i am in it i am in it i love it yeah it is it's powerful stuff so uh we have we have about five minutes left and i do not want to to uh uh lose this opportunity for you to be able to continue to let us know Anything that we have not discussed thus far as it relates to moving forward in your work as in New York City, as well as what is happening with this book and anything that uh, that you haven't said that you mm-hmm. believe needs to be said. I, I want to hear that. So um, the book uh, is has three parts to it. Uh, the first is a sociological essay. Dad was a sociologist, uh, a sociology major in college and was uh, in working in that space before he went into the ministry, which is fantastic because what, uh, you know, what that background helped him to do was to appreciate the societal structures and how society came into be and the intersection of societal values, norms, you know, behaviors and patterns with ministry, with theology and with ministry. So the first piece is the sociological sociological essay where he breaks down the system of racism, capitalism and militarism and then how to go about confronting the system. Uh, He talks about Christianity and the intersection and how the two are intertwined and must be addressed. The second part uh, uh, contains 11 sermons. Uh, six that were part of the original work and five never before published sermons. And uh, these sermons, the, especially the new ones, were chosen by me because they reflect social gospel preaching, in my opinion, at its best. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm one of those, you know, pew, uh, you know, pew occupants who uh, I sometimes say maybe I'm a little bit of a preaching snob. Uh, you know, because I heard good preaching all of my life growing up as a child. I'm one of those people who uh, firmly believes that, um, that, that the social gospel requires that you confront the injustices and you challenge the systems that prop them up, uh, whether they be individual or entities themselves, right? But you mm-hmm. challenge those structures. 
For me, social gospel preaching is not simply um, we have a responsibility to run a food uh, pantry or a soup kitchen. Um, we have a responsibility to uh, make sure that we collect clo uh, clothes and, and coats, you know, when wintertime comes. It really requires challenging and, con and confronting the systems and working together to dismantle them so that all people can live free uh, as God intended. And right. so the, the sermons show you, show, give you good examples of how to preach the social gospel, how to challenge injustice in our society uh, in a way that lifts God up and puts God front and center and, and helps the faith leader and the community to see the work that God intends. And yeah. the third part of the book uh, is a compilation of essays from several of today's uh, faith leaders and social justice leaders, including Dr. William J. Barber of the Poor People's Campaign Repairs the Breach, uh, Dr. Frederick Haynes, who works out of Texas and uh, leads a lot of the social gospel work in that community, um, Jacqueline Thompson, who is the first uh, female pastor of Allen Temple in Oakland, who's doing social gospel work. Andrea Alexander, vice president of the National Council of Churches, who's engaging in social gospel in the prison system. Uh, Otis Moss III at Trinity Church in Chicago, who is lifting up the, 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 the children of Chicago and causing society to look at them and see what the church should be doing to preach against the injustices there. Reverend Al Sharpton, Clayton Lee, uh, J. Alfred Smith, uh, Reverend Michael A. Walren wrote the afterward, Jim Forbes, the introduction, Michael, uh, Eric Dyson, the forward, and, and the list goes on and on. But That's it's people amazing. in the present day who speak to the importance of this book, helping us to understand what is happening and, ha and its relevance in today's society. It is an amazing book, that is for certain, and I'm glad that you 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 brought in all of those sprinkles and whipped cream and all the other stuff that you just added. It is, it is a wealth of information, and I'm so grateful that you have carved out the time to be here with Bill Myers Inspires this day, my dear. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you so very much. Yeah, yeah. So um, again... I encourage you to check out God in the Ghetto if you get an opportunity for all you readers out there. And thank you for tuning in today, and we look forward to the conversation next week. Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word and we'll see you here next Friday. Have a wonderful week.